March the 20th, 2016, lecture discussion number 234 on the book of Romans. And this is where, or this is typically about the place in any given lecture series. And what I mean by that is usually I go in groups of five to seven. And then uh, at that point, once I start getting towards the end, I, I inventory what I've left behind intentionally, typically. And some of you can predict my system. You know that I will traditionally retreat every five or six lessons or so and search for the stragglers. I know that I am overloading the material. I am doing it on purpose. I do not want anyone to ever think that they can go through their Bible and get the information completely. It is impossible. The Bible is from the infinite God. And we are not infinite. So those of you who have figured out uh, how I'm doing it, um, you know that when the fifth or the sixth one comes, you can come in for that one. And that, that does not, that, without sacrificing any significant loss of continuity, by that I mean fishing. So in the old days, uh, I had many people say to me, when do you expect to retreat and recap what you've done in the last five to six weeks? And I would tell them that was a mistake, because that meant they missed the, those particular sermons in the summer. And it was okay. I thought it was funny. When I taught high school, uh, now many years ago, I think my last year teaching high school, I have to think about that, 1989, I, I believe. Uh, Thursdays were review. I'd say review on Thursdays, test on Friday. So what happened? Thursdays were uh, statistical anomalies. No tardies, uh, no absences on Thursdays because test on Friday. But Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, they disappeared. I, I, uh, by the way, I am known for having no tardies. I had lots of absences. No tardies. And they finally asked me at a teacher in service, Mr. Gronster, how is it that you have no tardy? I should say hi to the Internet audience. But Lori said, would you please say hi to the Internet audience in a more respectful manner? Okay. I hope that's it. I'll find out when she looks at it. But people would ask me, teachers would ask me, how, Mr. Gronister, you have had no tardies. They thought I was not marking the tardies. You have to mark your tardies. We have to keep track of all of this stuff. Didn't you, Bill? Didn't you go around harassing the teachers? Bill was a principal, Bill the Fast, for those of you out there on the Internet. I had no tardies. He must be cheating. No. I locked the door. That's how I did it. The door had a self-closing mechanism on it, and I would go out and kick the little thing out of the way that locked the door open and held the door in place, the rubber stopper, and the door would start to swing closed 30 seconds before the tardy bell rang. And it would lock, and I'd close the blinds. And they would beat on the door. They weren't tardy. They were absent. worked very well. Eventually, I, they discovered that Mr. Chronister's class, if you wanted to go to it and you didn't want to have an absence, you had to go on Thursday for sure and you had to be on time. It's amazing how the children will adapt. Anyway, that same pattern at beautiful downtown Cliffside, which is neither beautiful nor downtown over the years. Internet has affected that, you folks. You've affected it nowadays. No longer is there any urgency for the first four or five sermons. And I have to respond to that. I'm thinking pumpkin rolls every week. Pizza, maybe, or brisket. Certainly on the review Sundays. 
I, I'm conceding to the need to incentivize the uh, local congregants. That's a problem with this Internet. We have known a real significant difference between uh, what was what our normal attendance was and when we started putting things on the Internet. All that to say is today is the day that I normally would make a list of everything remaining from the previous four sermons. So everything that I have let go out to the parameter or the perimeter and, uh, and address as much of that as is humane in a manner that is usually disjointed. I used to call these things uh, drool bucket Sundays, right? Because they're brutal. But I'm going to go out and get all of that stuff uh, that I've left off. And I made the list uh, yesterday to refresh it, and it's 24 items minimum of things that I have set aside to keep the process moving. Everything from Numbers 15, where the blue tassels are, to Samson's Nazaretic vows, uh, to Isaiah 14, the five I wills of Satan, the ashes of the red heifer, to the evil report that is in Numbers 14, why God called the report of the spies that went into the promised land evil, the withered hand man. Uh, I have a withered hand man that we're going to get to that Christ dealt with, and that, of course, takes you back to the unnamed prophet. Jonah's worms, the lawyer's woes. He says, woe to the lawyers, just as he does the Pharisees. He differentiates between lawyers and Pharisees. We have Luke 13.32 to discuss the wooden rod killing the rock. And, and of course, anytime I'm into the wooden rod, uh, I'm at Exodus 7, you get the picture. There's a pile to wade through, of a huge pile. And this would normally be the day, or should be the day, that I would take that pile on. And, and as you recognize, the system remains in spite of its de degraded usefulness. I'm still doing it, though the Internet has rendered it uh, probably uh, benign. But uh, today, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to... Uh, do a request, and yes, I take requests. I'm holding the product out for Coca-Cola to know that I have supported the product for many, many years. Let me make sure they could see it. It's my medicines, how I get through these lectures. Each congregant that is here has their own method of getting through them. This is mine. People tell me, I fell asleep in the lecture. I said, I know, I do that myself every Sunday. It's okay. I, I want you to rest. Yeah, it's one of my great benefits, I think. As you know, many years I have been wanting lazy boys in place of the chairs here. I'll let you all lay back. Uh, relax. Anyway, uh, uh, I'm going to divert to John 8. That's because of Bill the Cow and our friendly neighborhood supper, Dave. Independently, both of them came to me and said, and Bill yelled it out last week in the, in the lecture, hey, what about John 8? And I wasn't going to do John 8 um, because of the Sabbath aspect, but Bill noted that John 8 is particularly correlative. And he said to Luke 14, 1 through 6, he's absolutely right. So was Supper Dave. He came to me not even knowing what he couldn't even hear. Bill said the same thing. And then I got a phone call. Would you please add in John 8? And I thought, okay. So much for my drool bucket Thursday. Or I'm sorry, drool bucket Sunday in this case. 
In other words, I have the dropsy, swollen man, and I have the woman caught in adultery. They are complementary. There is no question about that. It's undeniably the case. I cannot repeat enough that the swollen, dying man, dying on the Sabbath, now that's a differentiation, that's a distinction, brought before the Lord God on the Sabbath, uh, Matthew 12, 8, the swollen man is a bait, is the bait of a trap. There's no question about that, to either. And I can't repeat that enough. So is the caught woman in John 8. She is the bait, if you will, if you wish to think of that, of it that way. Perfectly appropriate, absolutely accurate. She is very much like the swollen dying man. And note that the swollen man is the bait caught in the trap and the adulterous woman is actually described as being caught. And so she is in the trap as well. And each were deliberately placed there by the Pharisees. The Pharisees and the lawyers were convinced that Christ was confronted by an unsolvable collision. And any time you see an unsolvable collision... Whether the Pharisees bring it up or someone else brings it up, specifically Satan. Whenever you see something that is apparently unsolvable, can't be solved. This can't be resolved. No way God could do this. Then you know, I immediately you should consider the reconciling of the flaming lamp and the smoking furnace of, uh, uh, smoking furnace of Genesis 15. Genesis 15. I can't even begin to tell you how important that passage is. So much is resolved at Genesis 15. If you understand Genesis 15, you go through the Bible, or especially the New Testament, far, far uh, easily, not easily, with more ease, certainly with a lot less um, in... What's the word I'm searching for because I need medicine? A lot less error. Because you have solved Genesis 15. Not necessarily you have solved it, but you have followed in the footsteps of others who have. And Genesis 15 has as its New Testament equivalent the cup of Matthew 26:39. Let this cup pass from me is explained by the reconciliation of the smoking furnace and the flaming lamp and the separated animals of Genesis 15. Once you understand that, once you recognize that it's the same topic, no more mistakes about why Christ says what he says at Matthew 26, 39. But I can't do that today, even though we are doing it today. That's what we're doing. Just in a, a, a more obscure, I'm obfuscating Genesis 15. Not intentionally, just how it is today. Let's now go and collect John 8. That's where we are. And make a list of the results. And when I say compare, I'm talking about uh, Luke 14. Right? The, uh, the swollen man that we've covered the last couple of weeks. Figure out what is the same. As I'm reading this, say to yourself, what is the same about uh, the swollen man and what is not the same? So here we are, John 8, 1 through 12. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. 
if you wish to think of it this way, everyone went to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. So he has something in front of this. The division of Israel is in front of this. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now, early in the morning, he came into the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. So we have the same pattern. Scribes and the Pharisees bring, or the Pharisees specifically, John 14, bring a, a woman, or a man, a swollen man. The lawyers are there. They do the same thing here. Scribe and lawyer, same word. Same word. Interchangeable. They said to him, and when they had set her in front in the midst, they said to him, so she's sitting right in the middle now, right? Or standing in the middle. Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us, such should be stoned. But what do you say? They said that this they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. So start imagining all the Pharisees, the lawyers, the woman is brought. They declare her to be caught in the very act of adultery. And Jesus, and they ask him a question. Moses said we should kill her. What do you say? And he stoops down. And he writes in the dust with his finger as though he did not hear. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up. Let me repeat that. He raised himself up. And said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. Or cast the first stone is how most people, the old King James, of course, as most people remember it. And again, he stooped down and wrote in the dirt. Then those who heard being convicted by their conscience, conscience, notice they what? They Well, they had a conscience. That's extraordinary. Where would that come from? What is the source of a conscience? Better what? Better asked, who is the source of a conscience? Then those who heard it, or heard, being convicted by conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest to the last. And Jesus was left alone. And the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had raised himself, up, there it is again, and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. Very important. She figured out who he was. How did she figure out who he was? What did he do that made her figure out That this is God. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Okay? Remember why John wrote his gospel in the first place, under the direct power of the Holy Spirit of God. He did it for the singular purpose 
of establishing the uncontrovertible, unassailable proof that Jesus Christ is the creator God of all things. That's his purpose for writing the Gospel of John. If you're reading the Gospel of John and you don't recognize his singular focus, purpose, then, of course, you're going to miss out on what he's intending for you to learn, right? What God, through the Holy Spirit, which is God, of course, had John write. Jesus Christ is the creator God of all things. I have a woman that figured that out. And it's proof for you. If you read that story or listened to me read it, I hope you read it with me. If you read that and said, oh, wow, he just proved to that woman that he's God. And she got it. That's why John wrote it. By the way, that swollen man figured out that Jesus was God too, didn't he? So I have two of them that did. Who else figured it out? Man on the cross, of course, did too, yes. But I'm saying in those two stories, I've got lawyers and I have Pharisees. How many lawyers figured out that this is God himself? How many Pharisees did? Did they ever figure it out? How did the woman figure it out and the swollen man figure it out? Both of them did. That is so important to both of those stories is who finally gets it. But I'm not done with this. Let me finish the conclusion to the story. It's not sin no more. The conclusion to the story is verse 12. Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. That's amazing. I am the light of the world I am the light of life. Where's that in the Bible? Where is the first place I find the light of life? The light that causes life. And that's Genesis 1, isn't it? 3 through 4. The light that brings living souls into existence. That's what he says. I am that light in Genesis 1, 3 through 4 that brings living souls into existence. And physical matter. I said a couple weeks ago, one of the fundamental understanding of the, of the field in physics is that physical matter is simply congealed energy. Or in this case, congealed light. Or compacted or condensed light or energy. Physical reality that we love so much is energy or light. The light of life. Jesus Christ turns out to be a pretty darn good physicist. Don't act surprised. God is good at physics and math. Yes, ma'am. Did you raise your hand? No. We do take questions here. The Internet audience, hi. Did you notice my product placement? Please notify Coca-Cola Company. We need another camera. One that will look at me face-on. This profile, pretty we all admit, pretty bad. So I'm hoping something frontal might be better. And we get more cameras, aren't they? We get six or seven cameras, and somebody back there can pick one that doesn't look horrible. Who gets that job? Don't give it to Lori. Whenever we know. <laughs> okay. Yes, sir. Ah. 
the Sadducees. He built a cow for those on the Internet, um, and they are complaining, by the way. They can't hear the questions. So I, we have to get that all worked out. That's the whole point of and most of those jokes I just did. We're working on it. It takes us a while. Like, yeah, it's a long while, Terry says from the background. Yeah, Some of us have multiple jobs, and that's part of the reason. All of us have multiple jobs. Excuse me, <coughs> but we'll get uh, some kind of uh, system eventually, and that's our, our goal in the next few months. Christ says that he's light. He's the only light, not just any light. He says, I'm that light, the light that brought life. I am the life-giving light, the only light that can cause life to arise. And obviously, this will require our attention. I got a letter recently from James and Mark from Texas, and they're currently investigating the properties of the second light. You need to know that Christ doesn't call himself generally light. He calls himself ultimately the primeval. I don't know if my pen is going to work very well. Do we have another pen somewhere? We're having pen problems. We're spending all our money on pizza. We don't have any pins. How are we doing? Throw it from there, Terry. See if you hit Dave in the head. I'll, I'll get it in a minute. Okay. Is it is it dry erase? Let me see. Oh, look at that. Terithithi saves the lecture again. He calls himself the primeval, not primeval. Primeval, which means first or foremost, the absolute beginning light, the light that is the light of life. And um, Mark and James are considering the effects of uh, the second law of thermodynamics uh, or entropy on the second light. Not the primeval, not the first, but entropy on the second light. We know that the second light is subject to gravity, is it, has it been subject to entropy? Gravitational forces affect the second light. It's a particle-based light um, and is not to be confused with the primable or the uh, first light that, from which light, or I'm sorry, life is caused. And by the way, he says that uh, the primable light, the light that brings life is to be differentiated from darkness, separated from darkness. So if I have the light of life, uh, yes, I know, I'm disintegrating back into science class again. I know and no one likes it. The light of life, it's different. It is contrasted with the darkness. So if I have the light of, I have the darkness of. The light of life or the darkness of what? We'll have to go back and figure that out. Anyway, I know my limits with respect to these issues, and I just exceeded it, I think. Uh, it's, it's, there's a relationship between how much physics I can do, which, as you know, I'm intoxicated by the physics, and how much brisket and pumpkin rolls we have. And why do I look at Adina? Because she is not bringing enough pumpkin roll. We have to have an uprising. 
So I can do more physics if I have more of these things. It works. It's just basic bribery. Okay, for today, notice that Jesus God inserts, I am the light that causes life, and he does it as the, as the ending or the conclusion. He does it after he lets go of the adulterous woman. And this statement is the conclusion of what happened to the adulterous woman. Ask yourself why. And that should remind you of the swollen man. I hope it does. Okay. Now we have this list making we're going to do. I'm going to run fast because I've got 15 pages today, over 6,000 words. I've already evaporated half of my time and I've got to run. So it's going to be a little bit, like I said, drool bucket Sunday. Hang in there with me if you can. We read it. Uh, people, everyone went to their own house, right? But not Jesus. Says, but Jesus, he goes to the Mount of Olives. Ask why? Why did he go there? And then in the morning. So now we're in the morning. Obviously goes to the Mount of Olives at night. Everybody went to their own house. He goes to the Mount of Olives. And he comes to the temple. And the temple is what? What does God call the temple? He calls it his house. It is the house of God. So everybody went to their own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, and then he goes to his house, because he's God, and that's his house. He calls nothing else in the Bible his house but the temple of Israel. So when pastors, elders, deacons, pick whatever we call people in the church today, congregates say, I'm going to the house of God, they better be going to Jerusalem. Oops, it's not there. It's missing. The Romans tore it down. That is the house of God. Do not make the common mistake of calling some cheap wooden building on the south side of Anchorage the house of God. It's not. That offends people, and I'm sorry. No, no, I'm not. I'm not sorry. That is, of course, the fake sorry. And people came. Good idea. When God's in, the, in his house, it's a good idea for people to come. And he sat. Why did he sit? sit? And he taught. What did he teach? And again, scribes were there. And Pharisees were there. I'm abbreviating this enough to just get us through it today. And they brought a woman. And the same question about that woman has to be asked about the swollen man. Where did she come from? Why did they pick her? How did they bring her? How did they get her? What is the anatomy? All of the aspects of it. And she is caught in adultery. Adultery is interesting to God. 
as he defines it, because how God defines adultery becomes very important. Adultery to God is worshiping a God other than him. It has a meaning that is far more than what we typically mean. Where am I? And they say to him, Moses said we should kill her. What do you say? And it's a test. It's a trap. They think, just like we said about Genesis 15, that they have something that he cannot solve. But Jesus didn't answer them, did he? By the way, this says, but Jesus. So Jesus is... Connect those two together. But Jesus wrote with his finger. He raised himself up. That is a profound truth of the Bible right there. And he says... He who is innocent of adultery, throw the first stone. Because that's the scribe position. The scribes are lawyers. They're the ones that make all of these interpretations. I'll get to it in a minute. He said, he who is innocent of adultery, or he who is without sin. The sin has a specific context. The sin is which sin? Not all sin. But you're about to execute a woman for adultery. In order to do so, you can't have committed adultery. So he who is innocent of adultery cast the first stone. That's important because... At first, ask yourself, why do I even have a first stone? In other words, imagine the situation. I have a bunch of people. They're going to kill this woman. Somebody throws that first stone at her. And then everybody else throws. Who is it that gets to throw that first stone? As the scribes decide, because that's who decides. Or has decided. Baby's crying. Perfectly fine here. I'll talk louder. Okay, so let him throw first. And then what did he do? God wrote in the dirt again. So I have God in the dirt once, I got God in the dirt again. Why is he doing that? And then the they went one by one. They left. Single file, one at a time. 
Who went first? Who went second? Who went third? How many were there? How big a group of scribes and Pharisees I got here? I got enough to kill a woman with rocks. How many does that take? I have a hundred. Do I have two hundred? Yes, sir. Oh, I missed the U? Oh, that's because of the, I put a V when I met you. Sharon from Texas apparently lets you know when I miss things, right? Oh. We have, we have people who are, what's the, relentless, I guess. Hi, Sharon. I'm talking to the internet again like I'm crazy. It's okay because why? Yes, I am crazy. That's, I'm just verifying it. And they went one by one. Oldest uh, to the last. So now we know they went one by one and we went by age. Pretty much how we run the buffet. And Jesus... Alone, whenever God is described as alone, that's a very big deal. Because is he alone? Somebody obviously is witnessing this from the disciple side and the woman's there, right? Why is he described as alone? Where else is Jesus alone? But then it mentions the woman. She's there, the caught woman. All right, caught woman up here. Because that's how she should be described. Where are your killers? Yes, sir. Where are your killers? The people that had assembled to kill you, where have they gone? Does he know where they went? God knows where they went. When God asks, where are you? Where, where are you? Where else in the Bible does he do that? Okay, when he asks you or asks, where are you? That's a pretty important question to pay attention to. I wish we had time for all of this. We don't. Uh, we'll get to what we can. Are none innocent? That's a Romans verse, isn't it? What's the answer? Are none innocent? And she said... He also says, are none able to condemn you? Are none able to condemn you? Who's able to condemn you? Who's able to judge you? Yes. It just so happens that the very one who can condemn her and judge her is standing in front of her. This is her... This is her judgment day, in a sense, isn't it? She's standing before the judge of all things, of all all people. And, and he is saying to her, who can judge you? What should she say? You can. And she says, no one, Lord. That would be A-A, isn't it? So she does figure out who he is. She figures out, you're the one that can judge me. You're the one that can condemn me. You are the only innocent one. And he says, 
I do not condemn you. Why did he say that? Go and sin no more. By the way, is she going to go and sin some more? Of course she is. Just like you. You're going to sin. Raise your hand if you're not going to sin in the next one minute. Don't raise your hand. Why does he say, go and sin no more? He's omniscient God. And then he finishes with, um, I am the light of life. There's your, there's your list. Now, I've taken some interpretive liberties. Uh, I've done so because I believe they're substantiated by the context and Levitical law. Uh, and, and I've done it in order to hurry us through what is an incredible passage. I didn't do it any justice at all. I hope you begin to see what's all there. Maybe we'll pick through it a little bit next week for the special uh, First Fruits lecture. And I might, in fact, do that. I'm probably going to. But first, I've got to bring in Ezekiel 16. Because, and now we're talking about the nation of Israel. And that's why I tell you, you've got to understand what's going on. You're probably the generation that sees all of this stuff. I hope we are. But Ezekiel 16, 35 through 41. That's a key to this all. Because that is where the nation of Israel is described by God as a harlot surrounded by the very ones that have taken advantage of her harlotry. And they have come to stone her. It's actually identical. Word for word, this situation, the New Testament counterpart or correlation to John uh, uh, is uh, to Ezekiel 16.35-41. All of Ezekiel 16, for that matter, the New Testament uh, equivalent is John 8. So, we're going to have to go and look at this and understand that this woman is representative of the nation of Israel. The woman caught in adultery by those who have participated in her adultery. Clearly a portrait of the nation of Israel. And as well, this is an actual literal woman here. A real woman. She's found herself as the bait in a trap, just like the swollen man in Luke 14. And that immediately answers a key question about John 8. That being, how did they catch this woman in the act? Clearly you went, well, they caught her in the act. What, do they have video cameras? How did they catch the woman in the act? Who's the witness to the crimes? To this crime. The reason is, Ezekiel 16, 35-41 tells us, how they caught her. They're the ones that are committing adultery with her. The scribes and the Pharisees. She was in their employ. She was a temple prostitute for the Pharisees and the scribes. Which then asks another answer. Actually, another question. The most obvious of the obvious questions. Where was the missing man? Our men. Because I bring the woman and say, I caught her in the act, Right? How many does it take to commit adultery? Minimum. Two. Who's getting stoned? One. Who's the witnesses? The ones that have employed her for years. 
the ones to which or to with whom she is committing adultery. I know it sounds like uh, our. Never mind. I'm going to get in so much trouble. <sighs> sounds like a typical day of the U.S. Congress. I know. Men of power take advantage of women who don't have power. The Pharisees and the scribe have tremendous power. They're going to kill this woman just to prove a point. You don't get much more evil than that. They're extraordinarily wicked men here. Anyway, caught carries the implication of being caught. Duh. More brilliant insight for me. Highly trained theological professional. Don't try this at home. How can the woman be caught? Why was the woman the only one caught? Those are your questions that leap out. Then comes, what did Christ write in the dust or in the dirt? He wrote something. He did it twice. That what he wrote bears so much weight, obviously, God writing in the dust. That's why it's so important. Why was this woman caught by herself? How was she caught? What did he write in the dust? That's the natural order. That's how the question should follow. That's the sequence. Notice the scribes and the Pharisees. Let me read it here. Uh, go back in case you missed this part. Um, I thought I did a better job of putting it on the board, but I didn't. Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground. What do you say? What do you say? And Jesus wrote on the ground to respond to that. He didn't answer them verbally. He answered them by writing in the ground. And while he is writing in the ground, what are they doing, the Pharisees and the scribes? They're yelling at him. What do you say? What do you say? What do you say? He's writing. What do you say? You're repeating this. Moses said we should kill her. What do you say? Look at what it says here. And and when they continued asking him, he raised himself up. So I'm going to tell you, the scribes and the Pharisees are yelling at Christ while his finger is in the dust. And he doesn't respond to them. That's very solemn. So are these lawyers screaming at God? That's probably not a good plan. These were those who at the time of Christ's first coming had assumed the role of establishing rules of interpretation with respect to the commandments of God. These are the lawyers of the Old Testament systems that God put in place. They're the interpreters. They're the ones that tell you what it means. How many times are they right? Not very many. This is how many times I think they're right. They don't care. They like being wrong because if they get to be wrong, they get to have power over you. You are dependent upon them to tell you what the Old Testament means. Make the correlation. Where am I headed here? You have people today that will stand up and tell you what the Bible means. And they have no idea. And they are doing it for the sole purpose of controlling you. It's happening everywhere. 
The scribes didn't go away, or the church lawyers, if you will, didn't go away. People with church power love their church power. They're not doing what I'm doing. They're not holding up Coke cans. They got lots of money, big boats, large houses. And they're controlling people because they have established themselves as the sole authority of what the Bible says. You need to be afraid of them. In the sense, you need to be afraid you're not influenced by them. They're the gatekeepers, if you will. Not much different from our contemporary gatekeepers. In fact, the exact same. The lawyer and the scribes, uh, the lawyers and the scribes rendered judgment upon the actions and the activities of the Jewish people as to whether such actions were compliant. That's what they were doing. They were the deciders of what you did and whether or not it complied with the Old Testament law. And if it didn't comply with the Old Testament law, you were in danger of losing your access to Jewish society. Now, how could you get yourself back in access if you were threatened with loss of access? Oh, it's simple. Pay them off. Obviously, they quickly became powerful, the lawyers did, and therefore as quickly corrupt. And Jesus constantly, God constantly, unceasingly attacked their interpretive traditions. You see a church that is putting their traditions over Scripture, you have a corrupt church for the purposes of raising and controlling people, for the purposes, I'm sorry, purposes of raising money and controlling people which are interconnected. And one of the things he particularly did to cause them lots of problems, these lawyers who had their laws, as their interpretations of the laws, he went around and healed people on the Sabbath. He did it all the time, almost without rest. The book of Luke documents Sabbath healing after Sabbath healing after Sabbath healing. He was doing it purposely, God was, in their face, right in front of them. He delighted in it, I think. Indications that God has a sense of humor. And the scribes, the Sabbath lawyers, they were Sabbath lawyers, they decreed this healing as a violation of their interpretation of Sabbath law. And as they delineated it, as they construed it, they did not ever imagine that they were being confronted by the very author of the law. They didn't know that the man healing on the Sabbath that they declared to be in violation of the Sabbath law was the one that wrote the law. And how did he write it, by the way? With his finger, he did. This is the word himself. This is the supreme judge. Anyway, let's kind of reset our discussion here. Got to hurry now. A dying, swollen man is placed before Christ on the Sabbath. A caught woman also brought to Christ. Both are doomed. These are doomed people. Both are the bait and a baited trap. Both know that they're going to die. That woman knew as soon as she was hauled out, she's dead. All of her clientele are testifying against her. She's dead. There's no escape. She's going to be stoned to death. That swollen man knew he's right on the edge. The situation is hopeless. The dropsy man, the caught woman, they're surrounded by snakes. Exodus 7, right? Clearly the lawyers and the Pharisees intend for the woman to be executed and for the man to die. That's the plan. In each case, the lawyers were prepared. They're confident that the death would result. 
But Christ took hold of the unclean man. He grabbed the unclean man. Now, I think he reached out, as I said last week, his hand, and that unclean man gnawed through the ropes and grabbed him. Here's my chance, and he took it. Nobody figured that that was going to happen. Next week, I'll get to that. Christ took the whole, a hold of the unclean man, and Christ wrote in the dust with his finger. That's the two things he did. So I'm tying together the fact that he takes the man, and he writes with the in the dust, the finger of God writing in the dust. So start now collecting and assembling all the dust scriptures you can find. Because dust is very important in Genesis, and it's very important here. And then look at all the finger of God writing. Where God writes something, he does it in different places. I won't give you any more clues than that. Obviously, he writes the tablets. But he also writes someplace else. Put those passages side by side with John 8. Doing so will explain why Christ didn't answer them, but instead he lowered himself and wrote in the dust. Clearly, John, as he always does, is proving that Christ is the creator God, manifest in the, in the flesh, the word made flesh. I hope it is apparent that the taking of the swollen man and the writing in the dust are two parts to a whole. They have a direct connection. Christ did both in response to the lawyers and the Pharisees bringing someone before him. So both of those pieces interlock. Anyway. Christ has lowered himself in order to write in the dust. God has descended to the dust to write something in the dust. Ask the easiest of the obvious questions. Did God need to lower himself in order to write in the dust or the dirt? Could he have done it like this? Think laser pointer with a real laser. But he doesn't. He lowers himself. To write in the dust. What does writing in the dust represent? What now specifically did he write? How large do you think his writing was? It's in the dust. Have you ever written anything in the dust? How legible is it? Is this, can you read this? What is, what did they see? How did this happen? Was it you, me, the rest of us writing in the dust? Is that what it looked like? A kid and his finger in the sandbox? Is that what you're thinking? This is God writing in the dirt. What did it look like? And they all saw it. How long did this writing and question yelling go on? How long did he take? So that's an important question, isn't it? I'm just going to throw something out. He wrote in the dust an hour. Easy, couldn't he? Most of you think, well, maybe 10, 15 seconds, maybe a minute. I'm going to make you think, no, a lot longer. How much longer? We'll decide that in the coming weeks. How long did this writing and question yelling go on? How much time did God take to do this? At some point... Jesus Christ raises himself up, which is a fantastic truth in Scripture. Christ resurrects himself. Those are the words that cannot be overlooked. 
They are great words. They're of extraordinary importance. Now, many scholars and commentators have proposed theories as to what it was that Christ, the finger of God, wrote in the dust. Probably the most common position is the Exodus 31.18. Okay, that's that view. Exodus 31.18, of course, is where the tablets of stone uh, are uh, that God writes, the finger of God writes the Ten Commandments in two tables of stone. Stone, stone, where's stone here? I didn't put it on. But you know this is all about stoning this woman, right? And here Jesus writes twice in the dirt. Uh, how many times did he do the tablets or the tables of stone? Twice. Here he's in the dirt twice with his finger. He wrote first the uh, the first tablets, the first original stone tablets were smashed, and God repeated the process. Here Jesus writes twice. It cannot be set aside that the woman was to be executed by stone. And the lawyers had long before, in a now established, for lack of a better word, scribean tradition, was that the oldest of the accusers would throw the first stone. That's how it works. And the oldest of the accusers, however, as I said, could not be guilty of adultery. Certainly could not be guilty of adultery with this woman. If the, purpose, if the man is guilty of adultery with this woman, he's disqualified. So there's a large contingent of Bible experts who conclude that Christ was disqualifying each and every man one at a time. And as he's disqualifying them, they leave one at a time. And he disqualified the oldest first, eliminating them by age one at a time. That is a common view. And as enticing as this position is, it raises some immediate questions. Did you like that view? Will you be mad at me if I swat it away? I hope so, because that's kind of how I'm planning that. Why does Jesus write Twice, how does this listing of sin, if he's writing down Fred is disqualified, Bill is disqualified, Joe is disqualified, and he writes down why they're disqualified. One, they just deny it, wouldn't they? How's he going to prove it? Do they think he's God? Does he include some detail? How long does that take if he's got a hundred guys there? They just wait for him to get to them, thinking he won't. Once you begin this process of solving John 8, I submit to you, you'll find the twice writing and the two comings of Christ of Israel being more so, compre uh, I don't want to say comprehensive, comprehensible. Thank you. Found the word. In other words, he does it twice because he has two comings. Not because there are two tablets. Unless you want to make the two writings and the tablets representative of the two comings. Uh, that I wouldn't necessarily agree or disagree with you on. The woman is surrounded by her killers. Ezekiel 16.40 Unmistakably, again, the portrait of the nation of Israel. John 8 equals Ezekiel 16. I don't believe that can be disputed. So this is about Israel. Jesus Christ is answering the question of the surrounding Pharisees by what do you say? This is what I say, and he does it in the dirt. I don't believe you can uh, 
walk away from that. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned, but what do you say? And Christ answered that by writing it. So what he wrote in the dust is answering that question. In both the swollen man and the caught woman, Jesus in his time, in this time, in the time that he's doing, why did he want to find these people? He goes to the temple. He knows that woman's going to be brought there. He goes to that house. He knows that swollen man's going to be brought there. What's the reason he goes there? What's he doing in this particular phase of his ministry, if you will? This is the what phase. This is the saving phase. He's saving people. That's what he's always doing here. He ultimately saves both of these helplessly condemned people. It's what he's doing. It's his first advent, the saving, the despairing lost, the hopeless, the ones doomed. He comes to save them. So it should never be forgotten that that's what he's doing. And that's the context for the Savior, what the Savior says to Israel. Why do I tell you, what does what Remember Lot's wife about all the time? It's about saving Israel. Because he's talking about saving when he's in the saving phase. The king-judge phase is coming, or the judge-king is coming. But right now we're in the Savior phase when he says this. Uh, anyway, I can't help myself with Lot's wife stuff. I know I need therapy. It's a great mystery, and I, got, you got, I just can't let go of it, I know. But let me throw in another clue here. If God wrote the sins of the Pharisees on the ground in the dust, what, uh, what I'm going to say to you is you have general equivalency, don't you? I have 30 to 50-year-olds here. What is going to be the difference in their sin lists? There'll be some discrepancies, but ultimately they're going to be pretty much the same. So if you have him writing a sin list for each man, and each man reading his own list, but ooh, yeah, that's me. I guess I got to leave. How's he going to tell the difference between his list and your list? There's a lesson for you. The person next to you's sin list is going to look an awful lot like your sin list. In fact, you're going to exchange papers. No one will know. Better write your name on it. Okay. So if he's writing sin lists, we got problems because no one can tell. Adultery, yeah, check. Everybody there. What commandment of God did you not break? Please don't answer one. Don't, don't. So there, I have this general uh, equivalency, and I have 30 to 50-year-olds, and, and it's all going to be somewhat... Identical in my view. And Christ says, he who is without sin cast the first stone. So who should have cast the first stone? Probably the only person in that group outside of his disciples who didn't know the woman or people just hanging around the temple. The only one in the group that is not guilty of adultery with this woman is Christ. So he's the one that should have fired the first son, or his first stone. Sorry, son. <laughs> More medicine. He's the only one um, without sin. Instead of killing her, he saves her. That's what he does. And there is the important clue to what he wrote. It has something to do with salvation. Next week on First Fruits, or you would call Ishtar, because you prefer the Babylonian pagan name to the God-given name for the feast day. I don't know why. 
why would we have a fertility goddess name and run around and chase after eggs and rabbits to celebrate fertility when instead we could celebrate the feast day of first fruits, which is when the light that gives life raised himself up. See you next week.